Servus from Unique. Hello and welcome back to the High Tech Ventures podcast. Let's face it, technology transfer is super hard to do. There's so many different challenges. Most research projects in the labs will ultimately fail. But if they are able to reach a majority where technology transfer becomes relevant, there's even more challenges ahead. What is the right use case or application field? Who's the partner to bring that technology to market and build the business model around it? An incumbent or a spin-off? If we choose to build a spin-off, who's the founding team? How does the deal structure look like? And there's not that many people out there who have experienced technology transfer from all different angles. But in this episode, we have someone with a vast experience in that very field. And at the same time, he has built up technology transfer offices from the ground up. I'm more than happy to host this episode with Mark from NYU Langen Health. Let's all benefit from his experience. Hello, Mark. It's my pleasure to host you today uh, on the High Tech Ventures podcast. It's good to see you. Good to see you too. Um, today, we want to talk about tech transfer and your experience in that field and discuss how to do it. Uh, what are your key learnings over the past years and decades working in that space? But before we do that, we would like to understand better who you are, um, your career path, and uh, how you ended up um, being someone working in tech transfer and supporting spin-offs uh, in various ways. Sure. So the, yeah, the how you got into tech transfer is one of my favorite questions. So, so currently I'm the, I'm the vice president for technology opportunities and ventures at NYU, uh, including NYU Lango and Health. So there uh, I oversee the, the intellectual property commercialization on uh, startup support for our IP based transactions uh, on a research base that's nearly a billion dollars, which is uh, very exciting. I've only been at NYU for about six months, so it's been the fastest six months of my life probably. Uh, before that, I for 10 years were, was the Vice Provost for Innovation and New Ventures at the University of New Hampshire, where I built the tech transfer function from a spreadsheet. <laughs> so there was there was no database and there was really limited FTEs associated with it and built it from scratch. Um, and at, and at our, I think at our peak, we were ranked sixth in the country among mid-sized universities in innovation impact. So, you know, just goes to show if, uh, you know, you can take an institution and make a reasonable impact in a relatively short amount of time. 10 years is not very much to, time to make a change. Uh, before that, I ran a biotech company that called Qualist. Uh, I was I ran it for about four years. I worked there for eight total. Um, and Qualist itself was a spin out of a university. Um, and, and before that, I worked at the university that spun out Qualist, uh, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where I was also for eight years. Um, and then you know, first job, first job out of school was was uh, working for a division of Unilever and doing things to corn that God didn't intend. So, uh, so started off as a biochemist, went, um, got into tech transfer, uh, got an MBA along the way, and then went into an operating mode. Now, how I got in is, is, is like I said, is one of my favorite uh, questions because everybody has a really interesting origin story. At least if you're, if you're over 30, you usually have a pretty interesting origin story. <laughs> Absolutely. So, um, mine is, is actually quite straightforward. My father-in-law's tennis partner, uh, former tennis partner was the head of tech transfer at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And when I moved to Chapel Hill, not for tech transfer, but to just find a job, 
he was the only person that I knew. So, so doing good networking and uh, my father-in-law said, oh, you should talk to uh, Fran Meyer. And so I went in and talked to Fran about just helping me find a job in research because I'm was a I'm a recovering biochemist. And he said, well, I need a position. So I was an intern. I, I did all the filing for UNC Chapel Hill. So I was filing paperwork. We were implementing a database. I was scanning documents. And so um, not glamorous work, but you know, over 11 months, I basically went through and digitized the entire office. And you know, in retrospect, what was really interesting was I went up reading seven, 800 license agreements. You know, I would scan in the boring stuff, but I would read the license agreements because I was interested in what they said. And so after the course of a year, I had kind of taught myself how to write what a license was about and what IP was about and how to write a license. So, you know, he hired me after my, uh, after my temp position was over and then here I am. So you said uh, you did not really glamorous work in the very beginning. Um, what motivates you today to do this job? Uh, still after so many years? You know, it's, it, that's also pretty straightforward. It's, um, it's one of the few positions where you can really see the societal impact in the work that you do. I mean, what I love about tech transfer is, you know, we are the facilitators, uh, the point guard or the center back, depending on your sport. You know, we're, we're the people making sure that things happen. So um, in the absence of good tech transfer, Transactions are slow, transactions are inefficient, um, and opportunities are, are lost. So I love the fact that we can look at a technology and immediately start imagining how society benefits if it reaches the market, and then get to work on, on protecting it and figuring out where the right commercial path is to get it there as, as quickly as we can. So that it's not hard to be motivated. It's a really, it's a really fun job. Fully agreed. And um, so what is the core skill set that a technology transfer officer should own to be right and to do the job right? It's mental flexibility. You know, there is there is no right answer. So we can, if you and I were trying to get a deal done, uh, we could we could do that deal a hundred different ways. So being able to be flexible, being able to try to understand what the other side's looking for and And my, my view is always being really transparent about what you're trying to accomplish. So, you know, it's a, it does in the end get to be a classic negotiation, but it is really the point where you, if you understand what the person at the table with you wants, 99% of the time you're going to be able to find an answer. I've, I have never lost a deal on business terms. I've lost deals on ego mostly not mine, but sometimes, you know, I've lost deals because researchers did not like what we thought was a reasonable deal. I've lost, I've lost things for lots of personality driven reasons, but never from a business perspective, we're always able to nail down a business deal. Whose ego is it then that prevents most deals to happen? It's, it's everybody's. I mean, it's, it's really, you know, being good at tech transfer is more, Uh, psychological and sociological than it is on the business side because you're dealing with you're dealing with the university's needs you're dealing with your view and your perspective on how an agreement should look you have faculty members might maybe two or three maybe a postdoc who wants to get out of the lab and a and a faculty member who feels like who postdoc who would love to work for this company that's licensing the technology and a faculty member doesn't think it's the right company. And then you have the entire other side of the equation of a, 
of another company and their business people and their scientists and their lawyers. So, you know, a lot, uh, I often describe tech transfer as, as a Venn diagram where the three circles are science, law, and business. And we sit right in the middle of all of that. So you've got needs and ego is probably the wrong word, more like satisfying the needs of, of people in each of those three categories on two different sides. <laughs> so there's six, there's, a, there's two transaction people and two scientists and two lawyers and trying to be able to get everybody to agree what the right path is. is not, it's not straightforward, but it's fun. It's definitely fun, uh, but very complicated. All the stakeholder management, uh, as you said, let's yeah. let's dig deeper into into that in a second. Um, I'm wondering first if there's one thing that you that you came to understand over the past years about technology transfer that you would like to teach the younger Mark. Uh, what would it be? Oh, that's a good question. Um, it's a it's actually a phrase that I use now pretty frequently, which is serve the idea. So hmm. focus on the idea always. You know, what does the idea need? What is it, you know, what does this concept need to to how do you support the concept that you're trying to deliver in all stages to get it to the market? So I think that really orients you to the right solution. So you could, you know, sometimes it's a deal you don't love, but you know that it's the right path to market. And in the end, getting something to market, helping people, regardless of what the financial considerations are, that's better than that idea never getting to market. So that's that's really the it is it is it is the piece of advice that I give most frequently to new licensing officers is just to focus and serve the idea. Got it. Thank you. And let's let's touch upon your your years at New Hampshire. Um, and you said you you've been building up the tech transfer from the ground up there. Mm -hmm. What are the key hurdles and challenges that you faced over the years in building that up? It, I think you always have to understand the culture of a place before you can really be effective. So um, I, having worked at Chapel Hill and NYU, both very large, you know, top 25, top 30 prestigious institutions in the United States, And also working at the University of New Hampshire, which is itself a, a very good, uh, it's a Carnegie R1, which is in the US, the highest research ranking. It is, a, is, is an excellent university. But the culture at UNH is fundamentally different than the culture at NYU and at Chapel Hill. And frankly, the job is fundamentally different. Hmm. And, and what I mean by that is that these um, larger, at larger universities, when you pick up the phone, people answer. And often they call you. So people will call and say, I saw this idea. Is it available? In 10 years at the University of New Hampshire, no one ever called me about one of our ideas. It was always push, never, never pull. So, um, so when, you're, when you're in a place like UNH, which again is an excellent research university, is 45 minutes from Boston, uh, probably one of the leaders internationally in space science and ocean science. You know, it is, it has true excellence in many, many areas, but it's just not a place people think about. And I, now I tell people I'm at NYU and they're very excited to talk because they assume that the technology is great. So, you know, so once I understood that at UNH, I really started to think about what were the areas of the institution that I could help the most quickly. And so you can't apply 
the operating principles at an NYU or a Chapel Hill or a Stanford or an MIT at UNH. It simply doesn't work. And I actually think that's a place where universities around the world fail pretty frequently at tech transfer, as they all say, well, let's go to KU Leuven and let's go to Stanford and let's go to MIT and let's see how they do it and we'll just import their style. And it doesn't work <laughs> because your ecosystem isn't the same, the environment is not the same, your faculty aren't the same and they're not motivated the same. They're, they're quality-wise probably just as good, but they're not, they don't have uh, 50 years of success to say, yeah, we can, we can kind of do this. So, you know, so when I was at UNH, I really sat around and thought really hard about what do we have that are really unique assets? How do we build an environment that those assets can be successful? And we're just going to have to try harder. <laughs> so we had to build a different kind of capacity. And you know, we did two things there that I really liked and are, are things that I'm implementing at NYU as well. The first was a really heavy focus on creative and digital works. So when people think of tech transfer, they think about science and STEM and um, you know, patents and therapeutics and all the fun stuff, right? But there's a tremendous opportunity on every campus on curricula and scholarships and trademarks and uh, works of art, things that you publish that really is can be a springboard. So at UNH, we, we developed what, over time, what, what I think was widely regarded as the best digital and creative works operation in the world. Uh, I used to joke with Oxford, it was UNH and Oxford, and we would sort of duke it out a little bit to see who was, who was better. Um, but you know, we worked with our library system, we worked with sociologists and psychologists and uh, curricula and evaluative tools and really found a way to, to do some really interesting stuff with it. So at one point, we were number three, I think, in the United States in licenses per year. In 2016, we had done 190 licenses, which is was at the, and during that year was more than Harvard and MIT combined. And what we were doing was we were licensing a lot of copyrights. We were licensing uh, some works of scholarship non-exclusively frequently. And so we kind of, we had to zag. So we, we just did it differently. We didn't focus on exclusive big picture, big value licenses. I often joke that we were trying to be the Amazon of tech transfer where <laughs> we were trying to do a lot of small deals that would add up to, you know, sizable research impact. And, and it, it, it worked. It was the reason why we got that great ranking in the uh, in innovation impact the, that year. Um, and, it, and then it extended that and started to do an online licensing platform, which we implemented. So, so we're, we're repeating this at NYU, but effectively we, we licensed the technology from University College London that does create from a licensing perspective an Amazon-like experience. So we're uploading software and anything that we can do non-exclusively, there's a fixed cost to doing the business. We're putting it online. It literally has a, you know, a buy button you click the button, you put wow. in your credit card and you, you swipe your credit card and you put in the information. And if the transaction passes, you get a link to a place where you can download those files. So, you know, lots of universities have things that they'll license five or 10 times. It's the same terms, you know, and if you bring it in to, to the system, it might take you three or four or five weeks to do the transaction, which a university would think is easy. Like, great, I can license something in five weeks. This is amazing. 
we we literally started with the principle of how do we take a process that that takes three months and make it take three minutes and worked backwards and stripped out every piece of inefficiency along the way which is humans and we said all right well the terms are non-negotiable the payment has to be by credit card the payment processing has to be by credit card the license is a click-through and we work through the legal and financial issues of those to now you can do it at unh and we're repeating it at nyu you press a button and license the technology as fast as you, your hands can type in a credit card number is as fast as you can finish that transaction so so we're looking at ways to to extend that to things like you know maybe patents that we want to license non-exclusively and, and just doing a you know I'm going to make up a number uh, in case anybody wants to license things, <laughs> but you know, a $10,000 upfront fee and a 1% royalty click here. It's yours. Non-exclusive. Great. You know, I, I think, I think tech transfer offices have to get their head out of the, the existing way of doing things and really think about how to be a little more nimble and how to get more, more ideas to market. So, you know, that was a big focus of ours. We focused heavily on diversity and inclusion. Um, and then we also spent a lot of energy on corporate engagement, which is a place where I think the Europeans, uh, the European universities have it on the US where their corporate engagement is much better. It's much more uh, integrated. And so we brought in a, a corporate engagement team and we started to be proactive, meaning we were going out to industry and saying, what do you need? Not what, you know, what do you want to license? What are your problems? What do you need solved? How can we help you solve them? Not selling, like I think a lot of tech transfer offices do. Oh, do you need this, you know, desalinization tool? No. Well, I just told you my problem was in, you know, whatever it was, you know, data mining. And you told me, you gave me desalinization. I told you data mining. But actually going down to the problem set and saying, we're a partner and we're here to help you solve your problems. Tell us what your problem is and let's go find people who can help you. And that was really effective. And we started to get some industry reps that were coming in because we were just, we were easy to work with, honestly. And, and I tried, I think my experience in running a startup where you're just trying to like, how do you get somebody to yes? And how do you make them happy? And how do you get them to like what you're doing and, and, uh, and eventually buy? We took that attitude and we brought it to tech transfer, which was, okay, you know what we have. If you don't want that, what do you need? And let's be a partner with it. And it was, again, that was a very, that was a very effective tool for us. Wow, these were very, very interesting aspects already. And let's double click first on this digital marketplace thing, because this is mm -hmm. pretty interesting also, because um, all the tech transfer people are dealing with the latest technologies, but on their own and for their own processes, it seems like they are not using them uh, so far. But you're really envisioning a system that it's really like Amazon and leveraging the long tail I... business model. Do you feel yeah. So what was the feedback coming out of the university and, and from the colleagues, uh, the researchers, and who sets the deal when you envision that right. for patents, who is yeah. defining the deal? Good. It's good. It's a good question. So, you know, first off is that's not how we're doing everything. In fact, it was sure. the, it was the exact opposite. We said, what are, what either this is a good and useful tool because the market that we're selling into expects this think software, you know, When you go buy Office, you don't expect to have to call someone at Microsoft and tell them you're interested in some email and then have a five-week discussion about how Office works and whether it's good and valuable, right? You just want to press a button and get the software. So, so there, it's always, the faculty always have to agree. 
it all it is almost always a non-exclusive license. So we first go through what's the right what's the right licensing methodology to do. And I and I that's a place where if I just pause for a half second and say universities need to do more non-exclusive licensing. We've all been taught exclusive licensing is success and it's not. It it is successful in certain industries and appropriate for certain things. But I would actually say the vast majority of licenses might actually do a little bit better if it were they were non-exclusive than exclusive. The exception being therapeutics, of course, and um, you know anything medically related because the cost of investment is so sure. high. Um, you know, but you think about something like Cone Boyer, the original gene splicing tool, and that was non-exclusively licensed, very successful, built-in industry. So, so I think you start there, and then you know who does the deal is we we try to use that platform for things that is a light lift. There's very little technical need. So it download it. It's at your, we're not providing tech support. We're not providing like you, you, it's basically an as is license. So think about open source licensing, but that you can actually generate income of <laughs> instead of just giving it away for free. So, um, and, and deals that you think are reproducible. So again, it all starts with what's the commercial path. And then, and then we back into that. Now on the patentable stuff, I'm looking at it as we have a finite amount of time, a finite amount of humans, a finite amount of energy, and a finite amount of knowledge. So taking a patent that we, an issued patent or a patent application that we just don't know what to do with, and there's no, we can't get anybody interested in, but it exists. Why not put it online and give somebody a frictionless transaction? Because they might say that technology is interesting, but I don't want to work with a university. That's hard. Whether it is or not is, you know, I think most of the time, most people that complain about universities last had an experience with a tech transfer office in like 1997. <laughs> uh, by and large, they're very sophisticated. The, the modern TTO is a very sophisticated business operation. But, you know, there's a perception that, that universities can be difficult to deal with or hard to understand the terms. So reduce every barrier that exists, put it up there. If we don't, if we couldn't figure out a place to license it, we put it online, and all of a sudden we get an email saying, you know, hey, you just licensed this technology to Nuco. Awesome, because it wasn't going to happen. So now we make something happen that otherwise wasn't going to happen. And again, it always goes with the faculty have to say yes, they have to understand what we're doing, they have to understand why we're doing it. But I, I just always focus in on access. Like how do we get more of our ideas? into the hands of people to do something useful with them you know so one non-exclusive license is better than zero exclusive licenses because you have someone saying yes to your idea not no to your idea and, and you know i just I, that's more of a personal philosophy absolutely which brings me to the question of how to how to the incentive structures of research organizations and there's quite some debate for example yeah. um in, in europe and germany probably also in the us because most of the research organizations are measured by the number of tech transfers the number of spin-offs and no one um cares about yeah. the quality or no one seems to care about the quality <laughs> yeah. how do you feel about that yeah it's never money is how i feel about it because You know, uh, and I, I described it this way to someone once that if somebody offered me a million dollars up front for a technology and they said, I'm going to give you a million dollars, but I will never use this. And it's just going to sit on the shelf because I'm uninterested in it reaching the market. 
versus somebody who's going to give me a thousand dollars and say, we're going to spend the next two years trying to bring this to market. I'm going to do the thousand dollar deal because it's getting an idea into society, right? That's the, that's the trade-off. Now, you know, there's vanity metrics, <laughs> things you can measure, but right? <laughs> you know, and, and, and the two metrics that I pay the most attention to are disclosures and licenses, because those are the only two things you kind of can't fake. <laughs> so meaning you can patent anything, you know, income is not linked to success. You know, there, there, I remember one year there was a U.S. university that did 25 million in revenue and had eight disclosures and one license, you know, were they successful from a financial perspective without question from a productivity perspective? Mm. Not really. Right. So, you know, disclosures to me are, you know, for those who are listening, who don't know what I'm talking about, a disclosure is, is the faculty or the researcher describing their idea and presenting it to the university. The first, the first description of what they've done, you know, those are new ideas and that I think is the, that's the currency of the operation is how many disclosures do you get? Um, what's the quality of those disclosures? And, and then the other one is licensing, not licensing income, but just license number of licenses, because every time someone, and of course, you know, revenue bearing or royalty bearing licenses, what I mean, or, or something where value is exchanged, not a non-exclusive royalty free, click a button, who cares kind of license, but, but a revenue generating agreement because you can't fake those. If a company doesn't want your technology, they're not going to license it to do you a favor. So, so I think those two number one is the front end of the funnel. What are the ideas and what do you have? And then the other one are successful transactions that give a new idea a chance to reach the market. So when I give advice to universities or to you know, new directors or people who want to know how to do things better, this is just, just focus in on those two things. Make your licensing operation as excellent and efficient as it can be and go out there and find every disclosure that you can find. You know, make sure you're talking to researchers. Make sure you're talking to postdocs. Make sure you're talking to anybody that does anything useful and make sure they're telling you what they do. Because without it, without, we're, we're a supply side business. If we don't have inputs. We can't generate an output if we don't get anything in. Um, and then just to give folks an idea of scale. Um, so I, I was the chair last year of an, of an international tech transfer organization called Autumn. And Autumn has been collecting data for 40 years in the United States on technology commercialization. I think it might've been, maybe it was somewhere between 35 and 40. I, I forget the exact number. And out of those come what I, what I have jokingly referred to as the law of technology commercialization. <laughs> and that is a, a, fine, a ratio that says, you know, you should get a disclosure for roughly every two or $3 million in research funding, a patent application for roughly every 5 million in research funding, a license for every 10 million in research funding. And startups are new and this doesn't fit as well, but I would say between 40 and 60 million in research funding is kind of, and, and that's highly dependent on your ecosystem and, Again, it's much easier to start a company in New York City than it is in Durham, New Hampshire. Um, I've proven that by not starting very many at UNH and starting quite a bit uh, already in, uh, in New York. But those are just heuristics, but they fit really well. Public-private 
urban, rural, land grant, not land grant, medical school, not medical school. They, you know, they wobble a little bit on an individual basis, but they're good heuristics to use. So I use that, those ratios as an evaluative tool in all that we do. And so when I came to NYU, I looked at the, just, I just said, okay, what's the size of the research base? And it was roughly $920 million. So, okay, well, we should be getting roughly 400 to 450 disclosures a year. What did we have? 192. So right off the bat, you can say, well, I don't know what else is going on, but I'm going to make an educated guess that we're not seeing every idea. <laughs> so I've spent a lot of the first six months of saying, um, let's go out there, let's meet the faculty, let's engage, and let's have them tell us what they have, because it's really an excellent institution and with about 40% of the number of ideas that I think we should actually see. So I'm, that's why I'm really ex excited about my new job, because I you know, there's a reasonable expectation that there's going to be a lot more coming in and therefore a lot more coming out. Very clear, very interesting numbers. Thanks. Thanks for sharing here. Um, and I want to also get your understanding and understand your philosophy behind. And you mentioned that there's tech transfer, tech push. You come up with this great invention with a great new technology and you're trying to find the problem out there and the right partner to commercialize it. And there's maybe the way of understanding the problem out there, um, problems stated by yeah. corporates, by startups, whatever. And you're trying to stitch together the right competencies inside the research organization to serve that problem. Right. How, how do you go about that? Yeah, that's, that's going to be the next generation of things. Because I do think a lot of, remember, scientists are, scientists work at universities to create and disseminate knowledge. That's their job not invent things, not create products, but to create and distribute, disseminate knowledge. Papers, graduate students, and technology. There's lots of ways to get knowledge out into the world. A good friend of mine from the UK said the most successful tech transfer day of every year was graduation because the <laughs> students who had learned things had gone out, would go out and, yeah. and, and do really interesting things. So we do often have problems in searches of solutions. So a lot of what I focus on and what I ask the, the the folks in the offices that I've run to focus on is what is not what is patentable, but what is licensable hmm. and focus on licensability first and patentability second, because you can, as I mentioned, you can file a patent on anything you'd like. Um, and with enough money and a good attorney, you can get a patent on almost anything you like. Now, it might not be a good one or an enforceable one or a valuable one, but you can probably jam something through the patent office and get something <laughs> to issue if it's based on new science, because that's kind of the definition. Um, so when you think about building the teams together, and that's why I think I mentioned earlier about corporate engagement at UNH, that's why we did it, because we wanted to proactively understand what did industry need, what problems were they trying to solve? And knowing that, we could try to fit the solutions and say, do we have solutions that address these problems? Not does this technology work for this company, but do we know a problem over here do we have any solutions that speak to it? And if they speak to it directly, great. Probably a relatively simple license. If they don't speak to it directly, but they speak to it indirectly, can we engage the company and try to come up with something else? Um, we did, uh, again, something I did at UNH that, I'll, that we're going to start doing at NYU. Uh, I stole this idea from my friend Kevin Cullen, who works now works for the King Abdullah University, but was formerly at uh, University of New South Wales and um, uh, it, 
in Scotland, oh, Harriet Watt in Scotland. Um, he called them research sand pits. And the idea was that you would bring industry in to, to meet your faculty, to just talk. And so when we did them, excuse me, at UNH, we would pick a theme. So we did aerospace and defense, we did marine, life sciences. You know, we, we tried to pick a big, broad topic that lots of people would do. And then we would invite everybody that we knew in those industries, whether they were service providers or companies or whomever, even government sometimes. And, and the rules were really simple. The industry partners would come in and say, this is, this is my business. This is, what we're, this is what we're known for. And these are my three biggest problems that I need to solve in the next three to five years. We would tell our faculty with no slides, which can be challenging, no slides. <laughs> no slides, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and each, everybody was given 90 seconds. So the industry and the faculty were only given 90 seconds. And our faculty would say, here's who I am. Here's my research area. And these are the problems that I like to solve. And it was, it, we would just, it was like speed dating, but for science. So hmm. we'd do 10 or 15 of people introducing themselves. Um, and then we'd have a five minute uh, a 20 minute break where we, and, and then we ring a bell every five minutes. So you'd have a five minute conversation. We'd ring a bell. You would, you're supposed to move to the next conversation. So once we got good at that, we were facilitating sometimes 600 conversations in an afternoon. Um, and one time we had, even in little New Hampshire, you know, we had 200 company, uh, 200 people show up from like 85 companies. Cause it was just kind of interesting. So our faculty got a broad view of what industry needs were in, the, in a particular space. And the industry partners got a broad view of the research competencies of the universities. And we, we did all sorts of stuff out of those. We got licenses, we got partnerships, we got under relationships. We even got a sponsorship, like a, an athletics sponsorship, a company that didn't know we were in their space and got to know us a little bit and mm -hmm. said, oh, you know, I can't remember whether it was hockey or football, but they, you know, <laughs> they actually wound up giving a, uh, they wound up doing something on kind of a promotional basis with us. It was you know, a very effective way to get to build relationships. It seems like um, one could this offline dating could bring this process also to the online world at some point and merge that with your marketplace. Yeah, that's um, we tried to do, you know, we were going to do it in Zoom land, but I think everybody's really tired of Zoom mm. land. Um, yeah. So that we're going to wait a little bit and see if we can get into Uh, bigger groups. But, you know, what I liked about these sand pits was we then broke them down and we would occasionally do really small and focused ones. Like on, we did one on metal forming. Like how do you shape metals? We only had about 12 people from industry, but those were 12 people who had a real problem who wanted new solutions in metal forming. We had yeah. seven faculty members, but they were the seven faculty members who knew how to solve problems in metal forming. So you can do it big on scale, which is fun. And you always wind up in the newspapers, you get a little press coverage and your government comes, it's always good. But then on a, on, a mac, on a micro scale, you could do them as small as you want and they become really effective ways of partnering. So, you know, those are, and then if you could match that up with something you're, you're on and say, go here, you know, can you, I imagine a day, I think I'd probably shed a tear You know, where a faculty member will say, this is what I'm interested in doing. And, it, and here's the website to license my technology. Oh, wow. <laughs> that would be, yeah, that would be the, uh, the Cambrian explosion. 
we will get there you will get there Uh, i'm I'm pretty confident about that um so let's let's focus now on spin-offs uh and i would like to understand especially how to build the right team for spin-offs and what are best ways to structure deals so that they are compatible for markets out there and the venture capital yeah yeah team building is probably the biggest problem capital is a problem occasionally but great ideas find money even no matter where they are. But building a good team is really problematic, um, really challenging, I should say. Maybe the first, the first thing I think about is, that, is to make sure that the faculty understand the role that they should play, um, which is not the CEO of the startup company by and large. Um, I've been doing this job for 25 years off and on. I've only met one faculty member in my life who maybe two, one for sure and one probably who who could who could swing seamlessly between running a, a traditional knowledge creating research lab and then go off and run a company like a real experienced CEO and that's over thousands and thousands of disclosures and licenses and 25 years of experience right one maybe two So a lot of what we talk to our faculty about is find the role that's appropriate to you with your institutional policies. So some universities will say you you may not take an operating role of any kind or a C-level role of any kind in a business because of conflict of interest. Others are fine with it for a different period of time. So if anybody listening to this is thinking about, well, I really want the faculty member to play a core role. The first thing you should do is run to the university policies and say, what are they permitted to do? Hmm. So at, so at UNH, for example, um, faculty were allowed to be the CEO for a year, and then they could request to remain the CEO for one more year. But after two years, they could not be the CEO. Um, some institutions will only let you be the chair of the scientific advisory board. Some institutions won't even let you be the chair of the scientific advisory board. So for people thinking about funding universities, uh, university startups, go to the policies right out of the gate because it's not arbitrary. It's the, we've done this for long enough that there are definitely rules and they will definitely tell you and, and start there before you get your hopes up that the faculty will play a role that they're not able, not able to play in terms of conflict. But how would these policies look like in an ideal world? That's a great question. <laughs> so, so I tend to be a little liberal with that, which is, I think, I think faculty can play the role of the, ironically, I wish we used the the founder role a little more than the CEO role. I think for a lot of academics, they, they value the role of CEO. It feels better Hmm. than the role of founder, which is more appropriate. So I, you know, so they're not the same, obviously. But I, I think when you're when you're a really experienced uh, tenured faculty member, you're like, what haven't I done? Well, I haven't been the CEO of the company, and here's here's a way for me to do it. Um, I think in the early stages that they should be allowed to play a role, but um, it has to be with a conflict management plan that's really tightly managed, so that they have accountability and visibility in every step that they do and that they have to tell the university everything that they're doing that isn't confidential information just so that and it's really never about the faculty it's actually about graduate students and postdocs and making sure that the students 
and the researchers that are in the labs are never put in a position of conflict. You know, faculty or researchers or founders can be in a position of conflict because they have a conflict management plan. But what people don't talk about is what about the graduate students and postdocs and everybody else who don't get to have a conflict management plan, who are kind of tagging along this journey. So, you know, we spend a lot, I've already spent a lot of time at NYU talking about the appropriate role for those conflict plans. And it's the, the whatever rules you have to put in place, the graduate students, the postdocs, the employees in the academic lab have to always know exactly where things stand. So everything has to be disclosed. Everything has to be transparent. And people have to be able to say, I will not work on that project, even mm -hmm. if they're a, you know, a subordinate, because I'm uncomfortable with you know, the conflict of the PI. You know, which kind of upends the apple cart of, of academia sometimes, you know, where the PI gets to set the rules, which they should. But in this instance, it really is the integrity of the institution and the integrity of graduate students and, the, and making sure that graduate students can continue their inquiry without worrying about anything is the single most important thing. So I, you know, I think that was kind of a long-winded answer and I apologize, but I think within that is if you can sequester everything off and you can make sure that all those people are safe, you know, safeguarded from just the, the conflict, then the policy should be as flexible as possible with the focus of how does this, what does the company need to be successful? Got it. And so if the, the faculty members, if the researchers are unlikely to be the right CEO for the spin-off, why are we running all those entrepreneurship education programs then? And second question, mm. if the position of the CEO is needed, how do you get those people? What is the right profile? Yeah, yeah. actually, so that was a really good question about why are we teaching all this entrepreneurship stuff, right? It's, I never viewed it as teaching the faculty how to be, how to be CEOs. I viewed it as sharing the knowledge of what happens next. So like, I think it's really important that scientists understand what the path of the science is to having a, an impact on society. Papers are great. Books are great. You know, all of the posters and scientific presentations, they're all great. And they have an impact on society, on scientific society, right? Until that science is converted into a tool, a product, a process, something that directly affects human well, humanity, I was going to say human health, but obviously software and all those things, you know, they have to understand what happens next. And so I, I really always, excuse me, looked at things like i and these entrepreneurship training programs as really trying to expose them to the next steps of the process for that technology to reach its highest and most fulfilling use in society. And if you know where it's going to go, maybe... <laughs> You'll look at how you create this, the, the knowledge and how you create the science and create the experiments. And you might adjust them slightly to give you a better chance of reaching the path that gets things to market. So that's all on a personal level. That's all I've ever hoped for is just an understanding. You know, just like we teach ethics, not because people are unethical and need to be taught how to be ethical. We teach ethics to say, you know, these are the principles behind what happens and, you know, just make sure you're aware of them and, you know, make sure you check your biases at the door. You know, we teach entrepreneurship or entrepreneurship training to faculty 
to make sure that they understand the process. Now, grad students and postdocs, very different. <laughs> you know, we're teaching them how to get a job. And, and the numbers that I use a lot, at least, um, this was a publication in the United States, um, and I know you have a more global audience, was that something like 98.7% of postdocs or graduate students will not get a tenure track job in academia. So if you think about it, the business model of graduating postdocs and graduate students, you know, 20 years ago, maybe that number was 20 or 25 or even 30%. I know it was. If you go back in the 70s, it was 25 or 27%. But now it's 1.3%. So we have a business model that doesn't necessarily serve the needs of 99% of the people that are coming through this process. So these, I think these entrepreneurship training processes for graduate students and postdocs is we're teaching them what industry wants because they're going to get a job in industry almost certainly. And for some of them, we're going to teach them how to be a business leader and they're going to be scientifically educated, but we're going to give them the tools on how to start a company. Uh, as my friend Keith McGregor at Georgia Tech always says, don't take a job, make a job. Hmm. You know, so they get to make their own job and then start a new business and, and you know, grow the economy, which I think is really cool. Um, very quickly, you asked what's the right profile for a CEO. Um, that's just really hard. And every university around the country struggles with that. I always recommend you start first with your alumni. It's a, it's a, it's a principle that's stronger in the United States than it is in Europe or Asia, um, where we, we love our universities for, for uh, we just do. <laughs> it's just a thing, you know, <laughs> Europe loves soccer, <laughs> football. We love universities. So, um, you know, so when we go out and we talk to our alumni and say, please help us, they do. And they're, and they're really enthusiastic about helping us now for medical, for medicine. It's really interesting because again, I work I work uh, with a hospital system for a hospital system, uh, in addition to a university. Um, I've even just now seen patients who then want to help. So the hospital has you know helped them or helped their parents or really solved a medical issue, and they're circling back. And I think I've already had three phone calls with people in six months who've said, "You've helped my mom. I got treated." At, you know, one of them literally we gave a heart transplant to his mother extended her life. He is eternally grateful and wants to just says, how can I help you do more? Because, because, you know, you really changed, you, you saved my mom's life. So whatever you need, I'm, I'm there to help you. So that transfers more globally where we can think about, you know, even the patients and the families of the patients that we treat and improve the quality of their lives. Some of them will circle back and be able to help. And that obviously broadens the, the scope of the number of people that you can see, which is really fun. Final question to you, Mark. Looking at the current portfolio of opportunities at NYU, what are the fields that excite you the most, that are most promising? Uh, it's actually not a specific field. It's the convergence of fields that's the mm. most interesting, interesting right now. So, so uh, you know, we have a strong focus on medicine. We're one of the highest funded NIH research organizations in the country. In fact, this year we may very well be the highest funded because we got... Um, the largest award in the history of NIH. We had a $450 million grant to study long COVID. That's significant. Um, so it's, it's very, <laughs> thank you. I had nothing to do with it, but it's great for the institution. <laughs> um, but you know, there's, and that's of course distributed amongst dozens and dozens of collaborators, but it's, you know, but it's a huge amount of money and a huge responsibility. But I, what I see very clearly is 
everybody said software is eating the world. I would actually say that now healthcare is eating the world. And you're, we're seeing this direct convergence of AI and engineering and diagnostic and molecular tools with medicine to make the world a little bit better. So, you know, where the software people might never talk to the doctors unless you were in a Medtronic and you're trying to get a device to the readout to represent what you're saying. Now those collaborations are happening before the, at the problem stage. Well, we need, we need some, uh, computing computational tools. We need some engineering tools. We, what if we, does, do we know anyone who works with materials? 15 years ago, if you were trying to make a stent, you would never think about what the materials were. You would think about the design of the stent and the problem that the, the hole that it had to fit in. And you're really just thinking about here's the problem and you would draw it on a piece of paper and say, okay, make that. But you never thought, what's it made of? <laughs> what's the best material for that? Can we make the material itself do something? Now mm -hmm. we have drug eluding stents. And so I, I, I'm always excited when I see disclosures come from faculty in two fundamentally different disciplines. That's one of the places where I like to stop and say, I wanna know more about that because if you're collaborating on the problem solving stage, there's probably a really big idea on the other side of that. Love it. Thank you very much. I uh, pretty much enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for sharing all your insights. It was great having you, Mark. So thanks again. No, Torsten, it was, it was great. Happy to, anytime. <laughs> Talk soon again. Bye-bye, Mark. All right, bye-bye.